Prime Reboot. This is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, talking life during the novel coronavirus. So uh, in the last six months since this thing started, I have used cash three times, exactly three. I remember them in June, Brooklyn. I got two slices of pizza, exact change, seven bucks, including tip. In July, central New Jersey, paid 20 bucks cash for gas. And then last week, here in slightly upstate New York, walked to the local sandwich place. Shout out to Deli Highland Mills. Got myself a chicken parm. And then to go with it, I picked out a bottle of Starbucks mochaccino. Yeah, I know. I know. This is, this is how out of practice I am at just basic in-person commerce. It's I, how far off your deli game do you have to be to supplement a chicken parmesan sandwich with a Starbucks mochaccino? This is not what my millions approximately of fans have come to expect from me. And so I want to say publicly, I'm sorry. Anyway, it came to $12.38, paid him 13, said keep the change. Next day, I read, there's a nationwide coin shortage. The pandemic is somehow causing businesses to run out of coins. I don't, I don't understand how or why, but it, it's a real thing that's happening. And what it means to me is that in not taking my 62 cents change, I committed an act of incredible civic virtue right there at Chase Deli. And so I want to say publicly, you're welcome. All right. I got that off my chest. I feel like I can go on now. Uh, I've got kind of a, a high-end guest today, a little a little intimidating, to be honest with you. Ben Smith is here, an award-winning political reporter. Ben was the founding editor of BuzzFeed News. And since January, he's been the media columnist for the New York Times, uh, which I'm told is a popular news and information website. It also has a, a daily print edition. Is that right, Ben? You know, I, that is what I hear. I actually have never seen it, so I'm not sure. Interesting. Well, it's an internet rumor, so I don't know. Anyway, welcome to welcome see, to the show. I see, I see, I see, I see JPGs on Twitter that you know, suggests that. Uh, that must that must be what it is. Um, so you in January started covering media as your job. Now you're covering media when everyone's stuck at home on screens all the time. Um, it's a good bit of timing, I suppose. It's like being a beer critic during Oktoberfest or something. How uh, okay. you liking the job? Um, you know, I mean, I love reporting, just I always have. And it's been really incredibly fun just to get back to doing, you know, the core part of this business, which is just, you know, trying to figure out what's going on and tell people. Right. Uh, as opposed to being an, an editor, like in charge of that and overall thing before. Now you're more, uh, I would say, shoe leather. But of course, no one's going anyplace with shoes. Um, so what is the job? How do you construe the column that you do? It's once a week. Yeah, and I really... I view it as an opportunity to, you know, tell people something they didn't know, break news, um, try to contextualize it as best I can and give some sense of, of what's important and why, but not, I'm not really like a media critic. I, I think in some ways I've been, you know, I've been doing the work long enough that I, that I hesitate a little bit to pass judgment on people because I think it's hard <laughs> and complicated. Um, and I'd, but also I know what, just kind of how weird and messy it is and how interesting the details often are, if you can really get into them. And also, you know, and, and, and I think often if you just run right, right at these stories, you can find stuff that people didn't know. So this is, I don't know, maybe it's a dumb question, but why do you, why is media important? 
but I mean, I've, we all have our ideas, but why to you is it a, a particularly important thing to write about and pay attention to? I mean, I think now more than at other times, we really live in kind of a media age. You know, the president of the United States is a media professional whose most valuable commercial property was The Apprentice. And, um, you know, was a, his income came from NBC. And I think if you look at how politics has changed in particular, you've really seen the media replace the traditional party apparatus. Um, and, you well, know, and, so and, and what, is, what does that replace you know, in what sense? Uh, you know, just that the important, you know, the most important force in, the, in a Democratic primary, the, the key bosses are like Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes, not the Democratic chairman of Massachusetts oh, you've never heard of. Gotcha. Yes. Um, a lot of the way power plays out now is happening kind of through and in the media and, and in old and new media institutions. And so I think, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a, it's a beat that allows you to tell any story. And a lot of the most interesting stories is where media intersects with tech, with politics. Right. Or, or those things together. Yeah. I mean, I think you've written recently quite a lot about exactly the, those three things as they all come together. Um, the way I think about it is really that you have these kind of like live wires in the culture and media is one and tech is one and politics is one. And the good stories are the ones where you, where you touch those wires together. Right. Um, so there were a couple of recent ones, um, of yours that I was uh, you know, particularly interested in. Um, last month you wrote a piece about how the news, how the media could get election night wrong, I think was the way you put it. Yep. Um, that, you know, biggest story of the year and they might blow it. Um, uh, for people who didn't see that piece, uh, tell us what you meant by that. And also, like, that was a month ago. What, if anything, has changed since uh, since you put that out? Um, well, you know, I think the thing is that every election, the media then immediately gets beat up for getting it wrong and how we got it wrong. And there are a lot of ways that we got the Trump election wrong. And the thing is, you always screw it up in some new way. Sure. And the thing that I am certainly most worried about is just that, you know, there's this theater of election night. It's so weird. Like in America, you get the sense that, that there is that election results are delivered by these kind of men and women in suits on TV with incredible graphics and technology and vote counting maps. But really, like they're this facade and behind but, it are yeah. a bunch of are these, you know, as you remember from Florida in 2000, are, you know, hardworking volunteers and hanging chads and very, very chaotic county by county election systems that, um, that are always a mess. But this year, because of COVID and because of what seems to be a, likely to be a real surge of vote by mail, there's like a very, very plausible scenario where in a state like Pennsylvania, Trump is a little bit ahead on election day, but there's a pretty good sense that he's not ahead enough to prevent the mail-in ballots from turning that around. But he already see his supporters trying to create a perception that any votes that do not come in on November 3rd are not valid. And that's just, you know, that's not the system. That's and in fact, it's totally normal. And in, that, you know, you count all the votes and maybe you don't count them all in one night. And it's not, not an emergency. You just got to count them all. But I think that the theater of election night in America, you know, cuts real is real is really untrue. And, and it has been unreal since TV started in the very first right, kind of televised it, it, election night. They, um, they had a big computer when computers are new and it was beeping and flashing and it was fake. <laughs> It, <laughs> it was fake news. It was literally yeah, fake news. It was, it was a prop. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, except for, I guess, 2000, it's maybe we've been lucky that there hasn't been, um, you know, more of a disconnect between the theater of it and the actual results. So, in other words, 
almost all the time, you, we do know the results on election night, but that's built up this expectation, I suppose, that a normal election is one where you know by the time you go to bed on the East Coast. Um, yeah, and I just think, and it, yeah, and, and if it and, doesn't happen, then something's wrong. Yeah, and I think I think most people have. I mean, it's a noisy environment. I think some of the media have started to try to kind of educate their audiences. I mean, the, with Chuck Todd at NBC, who's probably like the most obsessed with this of anybody, and who has a big platform, hmm. um, has been saying is, you know, it's going to be election week or election month, not election night, and you just need to like internalize that. I mean, that's not you know, a, although these things are also unpredictable. It could be you know. Trump loses Texas and we all, you know, know by, you know, we all go to bed knowing who won. I mean, they're, they're, or Florida actually. And then they're also, you know, it's not totally impossible that Biden is ahead on election night and Florida is in the balance and the early votes in Florida attend Trump, right? Like it's not, I think people are getting, yeah, yeah. Our, it's not a predictable situation. It's, I mean, it seems, I don't know, from what I've been reading, it seems more likely to to veer Biden after that that night yeah, for than sure. not. But of course, we don't know. We don't know. So we don't know. Um, but you mentioned people are starting to uh, uh, get that story around. So in the months since you published that, do you have more of a sense like it's going to be okay or no? No. <laughs> I mean, I think. Well, you know, I think. Well, I mean, I think if we get lucky, it'll be a clear result. And if, and if it's not, I think the possibility, I mean, I think the idea that Biden would do what Al Gore did and ultimately sort of gracefully concede when a lot of his supporters weren't convinced of the legitimacy of the results. I don't think that happens seems really unlikely here. I mean, yeah. I think that particularly, you know, you have a situation where the popular vote is sort of legally irrelevant, but yeah. where you could have Biden winning the popular vote by a lot and also, you know, believing that there had been a lot of voter suppression. and kind of really reject, and you could see him rejecting the results of the election in a pretty, I mean, that's one of the scenarios I think people haven't considered. And then what happens and who knows? Well, and so what role would the news or news media play in a scenario like that? Or should they play? I mean, I do think that the the main thing that they can do is be patient with the actual results and not- Well, they are not, not good at that. That's not really their favorite thing. But that sense of there's something wrong with the fact that we're taking our time to count the votes and being really careful and that you should be out there tapping your foot, telling you, to, telling the vote counters to hurry up is sort of a fundamentally sort of, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but it is, it is, I think, pretty deeply ingrained in the way that, you know, uh, cable news operates. There's, uh, I think they, they generally do well to propagate a, a false sense of urgency. And this is something that calls for the opposite. So it doesn't give me a lot of faith. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, another uh, piece you wrote over the summer was, um, this isn't what you called it, it's sort of how I interpreted it, almost an advice column to Silicon Valley, to Facebook, Google, Twitter, on how to how to deal with and I guess avoid the, uh, the pressure that comes at them from conservatives, from politicians, from pundits, whatever, uh, to, you know, quote unquote, be more balanced in what they let uh, be seen on their platforms. Um, and uh, at it, there's a, there's a, a line in it that I'm going to just quote. Uh, American political journalism was pushed into a place where the goal was sometimes to balance the complaints of competing sides as much as to report on underlying realities. So I think you were saying that's something that uh, you had seen happen in prior generations of media. You were talking about, I think, actually the New York Times in earlier days, maybe network news, but now talking about these giant 
tech platforms. Um, what should what should Facebook do in the face of this pressure? What's the right thing for them to to do? I mean, I think these are I think these are like hard challenges, and maybe the number one thing is that Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg probably at some level should not be making these final decisions for global society, and that these are ultimately like policy and government level decisions, not. Are you guy. sure? I don't know. He's very rich. Um, you know, but as it stands, they are his decisions. And I think the column was really about the extent to which the right and later the left, but really mostly the right, build up this infrastructure of working the refs, of a really like professionalized system of complaining about you just had to complain about something every day in order to move the pull the conversation your way. And I think the media had gotten wise to that and um, broadly. And they then took that infrastructure and came to the platforms. And pretty soon Mark Zuckerberg is having meetings with people who, you know, are professional ref workers. It makes no sense to talk to them. They're not persuadable. They don't have serious points of view. They're just employee, employed to tell you you're too liberal. Um, <laughs> and I think they've all gotten a little less naive, but I, it still seems to me that they, you know, that they they're in a framework where they're trying to appease rather than trying to deal directly with reality. I mean, that said, they're also heavily regulated companies that are trying to appease the president. So it's a complicated situation. It, it is complicated, but I mean, what, what would you, what would be your preferred outcome? I suppose uh, not w- without uh, having to look out for like the good of Facebook, but what would you like to happen? Um, that, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that is a, that, that is a good question. I mean, I basically think what I would like to happen is that is for, you know, our highly functional legis- you know, Congress to figure out what it actually wants in terms of, you know, our platforms liable for things they publish and how to hold them liable and, and have some normal compromise piece of legislation like you have with any other industry rather than having stories in the media that either Donald Trump or like te- Congressman Ted Lieu t- tweets about prompting crisis meetings at Facebook where they make decisions aimed at appeasing whoever is mad at them in that particular moment. Yeah. Um, I also think though that, you know, the, the notion that, you know, we just have to keep both sides happy assumes the sides are sort of like total mirror images of each other. And right now there is a huge problem with a specific yeah, kind of kind of just, like right wing misinformation on the platform. Plainly not true. Yeah. And they just can't bring themselves to say, well, we're not going to promote gateway pundit pundit on Google because it's total garbage. And that's just like, if you're running a search engine, you don't actually want to feed your people garbage and it's not good for your customers, but they can't, they just can't bring themselves to say that. Out of regulatory fear or, or... I think it's a mix of, of regulatory fear and sort of, certain kind of naivete about politics. So speculate about this for me. So you, Trump is a creature of the media. Absolutely. Um, let's say that uh, in November or December or whenever it is, January 19th, he does decide to slink off. Uh, he accepts results of a Biden victory. What do you think happens with him post White House? He's a media guy. What's he going to do? Um, we've decided he's going to lose. If he loses, um, you know, if he, he, if he wins, I presume he'll be president. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, if he loses, he's the grand old man of this sort of new populist Republican party. He's a kingmaker. He 
has tons and tons of fun playing a sort of apprentice style game with who's going to be the Republican nominee. Does he go, I mean, I've heard like, does he become like a Fox News guy? Does he, like OAN is a thing? Does he I try think, to get I involved think, I in think, that? I mean, I think he will, he would like, he no doubt goes back into the media business. And the question is, Fox, which he has in some ways just sort of swallowed, do they find some way to make it worth his while to, um, to be in business with them? I wonder. I, I don't know if Rupert is like that big a guy on there. I don't think can, they can. I don't think yeah. they would want to. And so then, you know, does he take investment to, you know, co-own some version of a Trump TV, whether it's I've, OANN I've, or yeah. some other platform? I, I would not be surprised to see that. That Yeah, there were preliminary talks about that before the last election when he thought he was going to lose. I think he would I'm sure, no doubt like to be in the media business and be collecting revenue from, you know, all the great work he's doing. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I would imagine they're going to, he would find some way to do that. Yeah. Um, so you cover the media, you're a 40 something year old man. I don't know exactly how old there's big pieces of the media puzzle now that are, you know, that are not for people like you I mean, it's Snapchat, it's TikTok. but you, like, what do you do with, TikTok. Do you like spend time on TikTok getting to know how it works? Do you or like, can you operate Snapchat? Do you feel like you oh, need man, to, to do your so job? Much, too much time on TikTok. You do? Um, it, I mean, it's so addictive. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, yeah, I guess I've always, you know, uh, yes, I think it's important to just understand how these things work when you write about them and to be mm-hmm. and to be on them. Although, you know, I, I, you know, at BuzzFeed, we were in business with Snapchat and I've spent, and I've like spent a certain amount of time with Snap, but my social graph ultimately isn't on there. And you yeah. can't really like use social networking. You can't use, it's hard to use messaging software yes, yes, yes. when none of your friends are on it. Um, so, you know, right. I'm, and it's, I'm, I'm very and much it's on creepy Twitter to message right a bunch of teenagers. So yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, exactly. And be, although I have, I am surrounded by teenagers because I have kids. Um, yeah. I mean, I think TikTok is so interesting and I think like has, what do you like about it or what, what interests you about it? I suppose. It's just this incredible snapshot of, shot of what mostly teenagers are like up to and often full of like really inspired, you know, fun, silly stuff like Vine used to be. But it also has the sort of YouTube mechanisms that, you know, a good recommendation engine is also sort of a radicalization engine. And so if you get to the wrong side of TikTok, like I, you know, I sort of started the other night watching. Oh, I see what you mean. Like that. Watching a bunch of times that, uh, of like Trump supporter TikToks. And yeah. pretty soon I was watching guys talk about the coming, strapping on guns to talk about the coming civil war and a, a meme that I saw two videos of. And I think there were many more of people mo- like taking videos of Mexicans and mocking them, Mexican Americans and mocking them about how they were going to be deported. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of really dark, terrible stuff on there, but you don't see it. Again, thinking in terms of the election, like I'm sure that there's all sorts of messages and stuff going on that I will never ever see because of what my, you know, social networks are, but that are, I mean, I guess, you know, extreme examples, QAnon, but uh, it's like, Lost, uh, conversation I was having. Yeah, with, I mean, the thing about, today, it was like, no, it's like it's lots of people who you would consider like moderate voters are starting to like get these stories about child molestation and the Democrats, and like I don't know if they believe them or not, but they're starting to reach them. Yeah, I think that's right, but I also think that I mean, one of the things that I think you know there is this big and important emphasis on misinformation, 
But I think it sometimes it like imagines that Trump supporters like suffer from false consciousness. And if only you could get them good information, they would all vote for Joe Biden. Um, I mean, I think you also have to reckon with the fact that there's a very like open eyed embrace of a lot of what Trump stands for. Uh, that is, of course, the bigger problem. I mean, that because that's that's the unsolvable problem. Unless, I mean, can't think of a better guy to ask than you. Like, if media can be a force in that radicalizing direction, what can, you know, what can contemporary media do to be a force in the opposite direction to to fight that trend? Or is it going to be just like the more we go down the road with digital and social media, like the more likely more people are to be radicalized? All of this is happening amid broader cultural forces that are affected by, but also broadly, like driving the media all over the world. Um, I do think, you know, this isn't a decision that a handful of media executives can make anymore. I do think, you know, there's a question of whether opaque and like opaque algorithms that can make any piece of content viral in minutes globally are going to, you know, are going to really persist amid, you know, if there's regulation that makes the platforms liable for what they spread, for instance. Like, I, I think some of the way in which social media works could get harder. You still do have occasional, you know, mass cultural moments that everybody's talking about, like the uh, the recent Cardi B release. Once in a while, you get like a unifying culture. I just, yeah, that's <laughs> all. <laughs> So uh, a nice a nice Cardi B video is that's what can bring us all together and save us from a otherwise imminent civil war. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll hang my hat on that. Um, so Ben, as I think you know, this is a, a, a reboot podcast. We talk about uh, Jewy things sometimes. Yes. In in the I'm pandemic. For this. Yeah. Well, it's coming. Oh, here it is. I can say all those things that when you like talk with your non-Jewish friends you see them getting slightly nervous. And if your name is Smith, you have to be like, no, no, I'm Jewish. That's why. I'm <laughs> well, actually, I, I think I read on maybe, maybe it was Wikipedia, so I shouldn't take it for granted, but that you're uh, Smith because your dad was uh, Christian. Is that yes, correct? My dad is, my dad's a fairly observant Christian actually. And, and, uh, and it said, as, uh, as you know, that doesn't matter. As far as being in the tribe, no, it doesn't matter worth a damn. Um, and he's also a fairly politically conservative guy, I think it said. Yeah, he was a Republican appointee. And your mom was uh, Jewish and more liberal, I suppose. You know, Wikipedia really loves nothing better than counting Jews. Like, Oh, so I know it. Somebody who goes to everybody's Wikipedia entry and checks. It's not, I think it's not anti-Semitism per se. It's more like what's the, it's like the potential energy version of anti-Semitism. Like it's, it's, it's waiting. It could be, but not yet. I think it's sociologically, it's actually less and less likely today that, uh, you know, that the people of there's more mixed marriage, but less, I think, between uh, liberals and conservatives than there used to be. And I guess I'm wondering, like, do you think that growing up in that uh, in that house, uh, like, did that shape your view of the world in any particular way, and especially uh, shape your journalism and like being able to look at things from more than one angle or understand that there are yeah, I mean, I think, I do think that, I mean, you know, I don't know, and I don't want to overstate it, but I do think that growing up in a sort of household where people disagree really, really deeply on the most important stuff and basically get along and love each other is, um, you know, both like sort of gives you a certain point of view where you feel, and maybe sometimes wrongly, that people can kind of agree to disagree on important things. Um, I mean, I think that's not the fashionable point of view these days, honestly. Um, and sometimes it makes you, 
inclined to give people the benefit of the doubt when you shouldn't probably. When you shouldn't. Say more about that. Like sometimes one person's opinion is totally outrageous and reprehensible and the other's is absolutely correct. And which just, of course, happens in my family all the time, too. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but it probably makes you a better journalist than an activist or an advocate. It makes you, you know, a little uncertain of, of absolute truths. It doesn't make you a particularly good Jew, I would say. Um, I don't know that it makes you a bad one. I mean, I don't know. Uh, the, 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 having, having your more devout parent be Christian. Oh, perhaps. But also the thing about, like, you know, always questioning. And I'm like, eh, that's a pretty Jewish trait. Um what Jewy stuff have you done during the pandemic? What's like the Jewiest thing? Um, give, me some, give me something like you know, Jewy. My, my wife, who is not Jewish, um, started, like, we've started like sort of observing the Sabbath and baking challah from time to time. When we were holed up for upstate for a few months, we uh, she got very into making challah and made challah that impressed my mother. So that was... That it was impressed you? It did impress your mother. I think that was the most Jewish. That's thing. the test sort of half-heartedly in, intending to log into online, you know, Shabbat services, and then, in fact, not. But also, that's a that, that's a very popular form of Judaism, is intending and then not carrying it through. I, I guess the last question I would ask you then is, is uh, are you guys a poppy seed, or a sesame seed, or a plain type of challah situation? Plain. Yes, but large quantities. Large quantities of plain challah. I got to say, that's... Uh, and that is, that's, that's, I was not raised that way, but I will tolerate it. Uh, ben, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, that's in quarantine. Till next time, this is Steve Bodo saying, well, well, why do you want to move to the suburbs? 